Well, greetings to you. It's uh, good to be back with you again. You may not realize it, but this is my third time here uh, in, uh, in Cardiff with you all. Uh, second time I've had an opportunity to preach, so I'm excited about that. And it's just a joy to be with you. I was telling the men the other night that one of the things I always tell people back home is that I enjoy the diversity of your church. Uh, that it really is a, it's like a symphony actually, right? Uh, the body of Christ is like a symphony. You have different parts playing different parts, but when they all come together, it's a beautiful thing. And, and I see that with you too, in terms of age and of background and, uh, and your, your walk with the Lord, a very diverse group, but I really appreciate that. And it's good to see uh, that people from every tribe and tongue and language will one day be worshiping at Jesus' throne, but it's also happening right now um, all over the world too. And for bringing our guys here is just one of the things that I really enjoy about doing that is that they get a, ch a chance to see what the Lord is doing in other places of the world too. That's a tremendous encouragement to us to see that. Sometimes we get wrapped up in our own little corner of the world and we don't get to see what God is doing all over the world. But when you get to come to a place like this and see what the Lord is doing here, it's a great encouragement to us. And so you guys are, are, have been a great encouragement to our church. We have been praying for you for quite some time. Uh, Kevin and I meet regularly about every four weeks or so. And we have been praying for uh, a building for you for a number of years. I think that's been on the top of our prayer list for quite some time. And so to see that actually come about and then have the chance to react quickly and come to be with you to help with that uh, is just an amazing thing. It's a once-in-a-lifetime uh, opportunity for us, and we're really excited uh, about that. So um, I'm going to do something maybe a little bit different than what I had planned for today. Um, all along as I was preparing, I thought maybe I would speak to you from Acts chapter 10. It's one of my favorite stories in scripture, the story of Peter and Cornelius, how the gospel goes from, uh, from the Jews really to the Gentiles for the first time uh, there, and it's an extremely exciting story. Um, and then I thought about um, going to my very favorite book of scripture, which is Jonah, uh, and I preach from Jonah every chance I get to do that. Uh, and I thought actually since we were here, now we get to experience, we get to be a little bit more like Jonah because we've spent time in Wales. So... Um, <laughs> So I, anyway, thought thought it might be, a pro, all right, not, not a great joke, I understand that, but uh, I was working on that all week, you guys, this, uh, this was like something that I was really anxious to share with you, that joke, but, but instead, uh, I thought I would uh, take you through uh, biblical theology, and really what I want, you, want to do is help you to see what I think is God's plan uh, for all of us from the beginning of time, and it does end uh, really well. Uh, it does end at the throne room of God with people from every tribe and tongue and language worshiping at his feet, which is what it's all about. This is what we are created for. We are created to be worshipers of God. And so it's good news for us that God does accomplish what he says he's going to do. I hate to ruin the end of the story for you, right? But that's what he is working for. And we see that it is going to come to pass uh, one day. So that gives us a lot of confidence and freedom to live in our day and age, doesn't it? There can be a lot of things that are discouraging, distracting in our world. But if we keep our eyes focused on where God is taking us, it helps us to live with courage, with joy in the, uh, in the age that we live in, right? Uh, we talked about, we sang about uh, overcoming. And the only thing that allows us to overcome is that Jesus did overcome and that he has made it possible for us to as well. And so we are overcomers already. We are seated with him on high. And so living that reality out is what God has planned for us. And so I want to show you how, uh, from my perspective, God will get us to that point, right? He has had a plan all throughout the ages, and I've come to appreciate uh, a, an aspect of that plan that I want to share with you today. And I'm going to ask for some participation from you uh, this afternoon as well. I know it's after lunchtime. You might be a little bit sleepy. Some of you are jet-lagged. 
I don't know where um, Jake is, but I saw him nodding. Oh, I see him all right back there. <laughs> he was nodding off at men's ministry the other night. So I know it can be rough the, uh, this time of the day to, uh, to pay attention, but uh, I'm, I want to, uh, we're going to be in a, a number of different places in scripture. Okay. So I'm going to take you from some New Testament to some Old Testament, back to some New Testament things. But I want to start with this question. Does anybody in here major in philosophy in college? Does anybody study philosophy? Any philosophers? Okay. Are, are you a professional philosopher now, Nubia? I don't think there's such a thing as a professional philosopher. You just can't make money uh, doing that, for one thing, right? Um, but philosophy uh, has a number of things, and it has, uh, has had this idea for uh, centuries. There are three really major questions that philosophy works on. These three major questions are, where did we come from? Right? Where did we come from? Good question. Second big question they ask is, who are we? That's the question of identity, right? So where do we come from? That's the question of origin. The question then of identity is, who are we? And then finally, the third question, where are we going? Right? Where, is, where are we going? What is our purpose in life here? And you'll notice, if you think about it, that those three questions actually have the wrong focus. Right? They all have in common the word we or I. They're man-centered questions. Right? They're asking the questions, the big questions of reality from man's point of view. They, take, uh, they don't take into account that it actually should come from God's point of view. And what God is gracious to do for us in Scripture is to tell us those things that we need to know from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, you can find the answers to these three questions. Where did we come from? Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? That's right there. Who are we? Our identity. He has created us to be in his, in his image. Right? That's the, that is our identity. Where are we going? What is our purpose? He tells us to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, right? In an identity, both that image, but also then that purpose, he's gracious to tell us from the very beginning of scripture uh, exactly who we are and what we are meant to be. That is God's grace in our lives. So he is gracious to us. And then uh, throughout scripture, he reminds us of those things. He gets more specific with our identity in particular. Because I would say that one of the things that our society struggles with, and I, well, certainly in America, but I would assume here as well, is identity. Right? We're asking that question over and over again. Who am I? Who determines who I am? Is it my parents? Is it my genetics? Is it my society? Do I get to determine who I am? That's what society is asking itself over and over and over again. And if you're paying attention to what it's giving you, it's giving you more questions than answers about who you are, isn't it? But God is gracious to tell you who you are. So you don't have to wonder, right? You don't have to guess at what your purpose is or why you are created or, or where you are headed. You know all of those things because God is gracious to tell you those things. And I think that's a wonderful gift that we have from him. I'd like for you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, because here he gets very specific in telling us who we are and what our purpose is from that. And so this is going to be a bit of the theme of what we're talking about here today. 1 Peter 2, 9. I think you're going to be familiar with this verse. It's one of my very favorites, but I have a lot of very favorites. <laughs> 1 Peter 2, 9. In fact, I was amazed. I think it was Josh uh, was telling me that he remembered something from the last time that I was here, and I taught a class on hermeneutics uh, with the people, with, with some of you from the church, and he actually remembered something from what I said uh, that those many years ago. And I had, I had talked about the fact that I don't mark up my Bible, that I don't, I don't highlight anything, I don't underline anything, uh, because for me, that's a bit of a distraction. I'm not telling you you shouldn't do that, but it's all inspired, right? 
And when I underline or when I highlight something, then I tend to look at only what I've highlighted or underlined, and I tend to then forget that all of it is inspired. Um, so, and Josh remembered that I had talked about that, and actually I'm borrowing somebody's paper Bible today. I had my uh, electronic copy, and I see that these are mostly clean in here too, so it makes me feel at home when I open up a clean Bible like that. 1 Peter 2.9, ter- you've turned to it. It says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So how does he define us here? What are the words that he uses to describe who we are? A chosen race, right? What's the next one? A royal priesthood. And then finally, a holy nation. And then a people for his own possession. Those are uh, also giving us that uh, rounding out of that. But he also gives us a purpose there. What is the purpose? Why are we those things? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love to hear a testimony, uh, even like Daniel's, where uh, he may, may, may not have been very aware of the darkness that he was called out of, but he was definitely called out of darkness, right? Uh, and every single uh, redemption story, every single testimony is a miracle because it takes God to pull you out of that darkness and bring you into his marvelous light. And so we get to proclaim those excell- the excellencies of him who did that for us. That is our purpose, right? So our identity is here. And our purpose is here, and I think beautifully stated. And so I want to take you to a little bit further definition of just a couple of those things. The royal priesthood and a holy nation. And we're going to talk about those two things in particular today. And I want you to think about this here for a second. If you're um, paying attention as you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll realize that when Peter writes these words about a royal priesthood and a holy nation, these aren't unique to Peter. He didn't make these up. He's actually pulling them from the Old Testament. He's pulling them from a very significant part of the Old Testament, in fact, just before the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus chapter 20. In fact, if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 to 6, Peter is pulling from Exodus 19 when he gives this definition of who we are. tells us about our identity here as Christians. Exodus chapter 19, we're going to begin in verse 5. This is God talking through Moses to the people of Israel. If you'll remember, they're just about to pass into the Holy Land. They've been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years and then wandered around in a wilderness for 40 years, and now they're about to enter into the Promised Land. And this is, again, the grace of God is that oftentimes when a new chapter of life is beginning for his people, he sends a lot of revelation for them to understand what they're about to go through. Imagine if you've never been a a nation that has governed itself You've never been in a place where you can farm your own land, grow your own crops, take care of your own animals. And now you're going to move into that. It's going to be a major transition for you. And so God is now bringing them in out of slavery into the promised land. And they need a tremendous amount of instruction about how they're supposed to live when they get in there. They've never done something like that before. And so through Moses, God says this, Now therefore, verse 5 of Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Does that ring a bell from 1 Peter 2, 9, right? Then further, among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And I, I love that he said that. God claims ownership of the entire earth, including you, right? Uh, Genesis 1, 1, again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I like to ask the people that I teach through that passage, what else is there? Right? If you have the heavens and the earth, what else is there? 
he claims absolutely um, control, uh, ownership, and sovereignty over absolutely all of creation. It's all his. And so he says this again here in 19.5, for all the earth is mine. Now look at this, verse 6. He gives them, again, their identity. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So there it is. The same thing that Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9 of First Peter. Moses had said 4,000 years, 3,000 years earlier to the people of Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is where I want your participation for a second. Think about this here. A kingdom of priests. Now, in Israel, there were kings or priests, right? Because the kings came from which tribe? For instance, um, David came from which tribe? Judah, right? The priests came from what tribe? The Levites, right? The Le so the tribe of Levi, Levi, okay? So you couldn't be both a king and a priest because you couldn't be from both of those tribes. And so he's telling them something that then is going to be very confusing for them a bit later. What do, mean, what do you mean that we are a kingdom of priests? There's one tribe of priests, the Levites, right? And so let's, let's think about this for just a second. As we think about the Levites, what did they do? What was a, the job of a Levite or a priest? What were they supposed to do? Offer sacrifices to God, right? Absolutely. That's the one major thing that they did. There's a second major thing that they did. Worship, and that's a part of worship, right? But instruction of the people as well, okay? So you can think about it this way. They would approach God for the people in the sacrifices in the worship, and they would approach the people for God in the instruction that they would give. So it's both instruction and worship that the Levites were in charge of, okay? Um, think about this again just a little bit further. If you think about the time of Joshua, he divides up the land between all 12 tribes, right? Which, uh, so which tribe didn't get any land? The Levites, okay? So where are they supposed to live? They don't have any place to live, right? The Levites have no place to live. What, where, do they, where are they supposed to be? Amongst the people, right? So they're supposed to be spread out amongst all of the different tribes. And I think this is a brilliant plan on God's part. The people who are supposed to be representing God to the people and the people to God are living amongst the people that they're representing. Imagine if all of the priests only lived within the temple precincts. What would they know about life? Only about the giving of sacrifices and all the stuff that is caught up in that, right? And the people that live locally around them. But if you have the Levites living amongst the different people, imagine this in uh, David's day, for instance, right? You'd have some Levites who were living where the shepherds lived. And so they would get to know the shepherds. They would know what life was like for a shepherd, right? So when they talked to the people, they could tell, talk to them in a language that they would understand. Uh, using the kinds of analogies and pictures that uh, a shepherd would understand, right? Or if they lived up around the Sea of Galilee, where all the fishermen lived, right? Like Peter and James and John. They would be living with fishermen, and they would get to know the life of a fisherman. And so they could speak to the people about God in a language that they would understand. Look at it the other way around, though, too. They could also speak to God about what would concern a fisherman or a shepherd or a, a grape har uh, harvester, right? Or, or a planter of different crops. And so God has them living amongst the various different people that they're going to be representing so that they will understand what is life like for somebody like that, right? So that they will get an opportunity to minister to the people that they are living with. That's a brilliant plan, isn't it? All right, let's extend that a little bit then. So how do you then have a kingdom of priests? If everybody within Israel is supposed to be uh, a priest, what are the implications of that? 
Does Israel have neighbors? Can you think of any other neighbors by any chance? Can you think about geography around the nation of Israel? Who are some of those that we hear mentioned all the time in the Old Testament? The Syrians, okay. The Egyptians as well, right? A neighbor. Who else? You guys heard of the Moabites, the Hittites, the Ammonites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, all these ites that are mentioned so, so many times throughout Scripture. These are the neighbors who are living in the neighborhood around Israel. Okay? So if the priests are supposed to be, the Levites are supposed to be priests within Israel, what is Israel supposed to do then for its neighbors? Live amongst them, right? Get to know them, understand them so that they can introduce God to those people as well. Because remember, God's ultimate plan is that there will be people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation worshiping around his throne, right? So how is that going to happen unless the entire kingdom of Israel is functioning as priests within its neighborhood? Does that make sense? You guys, I often read through the Old Testament prophets um, years ago thinking, you know, it's just not really all that fair that God would say something like, uh, woe to you Ammonites, woe to you uh, Moabites, woe to you Assyrians, because how are they supposed to know how to act? Well, how were they supposed to know how to act? Their neighbors were supposed to tell them, right? They were going to know God through the Israelites. You guys following me with this? That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. Now, let's take that from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? Is it any different, right? Has God called us to all be in one place all the time, to minister only to one another? No, right? He has put us in various different places, some in Wales, some in America, right? Some in plumbing jobs, some in electrical jobs, some in pastoring jobs, right? But all of us are supposed to do what with those opportunities? Right? Eventually, we're supposed to make him known. We're supposed to be a kingdom of priests within that, okay? And so that's what it means for, from God's point of view to be a kingdom of priests. Let's take this uh, just a step further. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Unfortunately, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 5. Unfortunately, the people of God in the Old Testament largely failed in their responsibility to be a kingdom of priests to their neighbors. I, you guys, I feel convicted every time I talk about this because I also live in a neighborhood. <laughs> I also have neighbors around me. In America, oftentimes, uh, we have garages where people will drive their car into their garage, push a button, the garage door shuts behind them, you never even see them, right? They get into their car, they go in through their garage, I, you never see them. I think I've lived in my house now for about four years. I've seen uh, my next door neighbor, whose name I do know, I've seen him, I think, six times. I see his dog every single day. I know Phoebe very well, uh, that's his dog, because um, I often have to tell her, it's just me, Phoebe, don't need to bark, you're going to be okay. But I don't see him uh, hardly ever at all. Uh, I knew one other neighbor across the street from me, a dear lady from our church, actually. She lived there before we moved into the neighborhood. She passed away uh, last year as well, and so I knew her. Uh, and I now know the person who lives in her house because I was introduced, the family who, uh, who owned the house introduced me to her as she moved in. So I'm now trying to get to know her, but I see her maybe once a week. It's very difficult to get to know my neighbors, but you guys, I see them as my responsibility. I need to be praying for them. I need to be looking uh, for them. I need to be opening doors to have conversations with them. Otherwise, I think I'm going to be in the same situation that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. 5.13. This is in uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, and Jesus is a, addressing a very diverse crowd. He has people coming from all over uh, the known world at that time to hear him preach. Why are they coming to hear him? Let's look actually to the context there in Matthew chapter 4. Why are they coming to hear him? We have to see uh, who Matthew sets up as his audience here in the context for the Sermon on the Mount. So go to Matthew 4 before we get to Matthew 5. And look at verse 23 of Matthew 4. This is what it says. And he went throughout all Galilee, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, which is one of the neighbors from Israel from the Old Testament, right? And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, if you know your Old Testament, New Testament geography, you know that people are coming from wide uh, areas around there. They're coming from hundreds of miles away to hear Jesus preach. And why are they coming? What are they looking for? Healing, right? Miracles. The, Jesus is attracting people by this, and he's, he's welcoming all that will come to hear him preach. And then he sees the crowds, verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. He sees the crowds. He goes up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. I want you to picture this. The Sea of Galilee is where he's located now, and there it's surrounded by hills all the way around. Uh, the Sea of Galilee lies at about 700 feet below sea level. I don't know how to convert that into metric. Sorry about that. Um, 700 feet below sea level, so about uh, 200 meters below sea level, somewhere like, a little more than 200 meters below sea level. So it lies down in a bowl, and there are uh, tremendous winds that come through that bowl because there's a little funnel that comes there, and that's why you have all the storms that you experience on the Sea of Galilee. The wind just weep, uh, whips around in there and creates storms down there. But it also makes a natural amphitheater, which is amazing. It's as if God created it for Jesus' ministry there. I think he did, actually created for that. So there are places where Jesus can go and either sit up on a hillside and talk to people who are down below and they can hear him without amplification. We know that there were at least 5,000 people, probably more like 15 or 20,000 people that would hear Jesus at any one time. No microphones, no cell phones, no any of that, right? But they could hear him in this place because of the way that God created that for them to be heard. Other places around that sea, he can get in a boat, get a little bit off the shore, and then it's the same thing. He speaks up towards the crowd, and the, the, the whole amphitheater ca captures what he's saying so that everybody can hear. And Jesus is eager then to welcome all these people to hear them preach. So let's skip down just a little bit to book, chapter 5, verse 13. Have you guys heard, uh, I, I'm sure, this is a very common thing to put on um, T-shirts and posters in Christian homes, salt and light, right? Where do we get this idea of salt and light? It comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. And this is what Jesus, how he describes the people that he's talking to there. Chapter 5, verse 13. He says to them, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I think Jesus is talking about the kingdom of priests from the Old Testament. He said, I created you to be salt. Now, salt in those ancient days had two main purposes. The first was to give flavor to things. Uh, there were very few spices. In fact, spices were some of the most valuable commodities in all the world at that time. In fact, have you ever heard the, the phrase, not worth his salt? Do you know where that comes from? 
It comes from Roman soldiers were actually paid in salt. That was such a valuable thing that they were given their salt as, a, as payment. And so when you said that a soldier wasn't worth his salt, you were saying that he wasn't worth what he was being paid. Okay? And so salt was incredibly valuable for its ability to flavor, but then also for its ability to preserve and protect things. There were no, there were no refrigerators, no refrigeration, no other way to protect and preserve things, especially meats and fish, um, than by soaking them in salt and, and drying them out in that way. Okay? But have you ever gone into a cafe, um, maybe you have these, uh, that has a salt shaker that's been sitting there for maybe decades? <laughs> and you try, you turn it, you know, you're trying to salt your food, you turn it over and nothing comes out. You take off the lid, turn it over, nothing comes out, and it's all stuck in there, right? Have you ever had that experience? This happens in America all the time, but maybe not so much here, I don't know. So you, you try to do that, right? Now imagine this, you guys. Try to take that salt shaker and then just take a nice swig out of it. That sound good to you? No, I see some people cringing, right? Salt wasn't meant to be taken in large quantities like that. It's meant to be spread out, right? The, it's overwhelming if it's all in one place at one time. That's not its purpose. Okay? What Jesus is saying is that I created you to be spread out, right? Like a kingdom of priests. And instead, what you did was you gathered together in a little salt shaker in Jerusalem, for instance, and you said, this, we're just going to stick together here. And so you're no longer accomplishing the function that I gave to you. He said, what's the consequence for it? What does he say is going to happen there to salt that is no longer doing its function? It's going to be spread out and trampled under people's feet. Does this remind you of anything that happened in the Old Testament? When were the people of Israel spread out and trampled under people's feet? You might think, when were they not spread out and trampled under people's feet, right? The big one is the exile. Remember after... 586, when the temple is destroyed, the Babylonians take them into exile. Actually, it starts in 606, the first wave of exiles, 606, the second, 597, third, and 586. And they're taken to Babylon. Think about one character in particular that was taken into, um, into captivity. Okay, so we have a, a big book in scripture about him. One of my favorites, I got a chance, that in fact, the last time I preached here was from the book of Daniel. Uh, you remember Daniel, right? And he lives almost his entire life from the time he's uh, of age, he lives almost his entire life in Babylon, right, in exile. I, I think that must have felt tremendously unfair to somebody like Daniel, right? A fairly righteous person. In fact, we see in Daniel uh, a great amount of faithfulness, um, a desire to serve the Lord even in very difficult circumstances, and yet he lives his life in exile. But does Daniel seem like a disappointed character to you? When you think of Daniel, do you think of disappointment? No. I think of joy, right? I think of power when I think about Daniel, of hope when you think about Daniel. His prayer in chapter 9, for instance, really reflects the fact that he knows God's word, that he expects God to do the things that God has promised that he would do, right? So Daniel has been taken into exile, and you would think, okay, well, exile was a punishment for sin, right? The sin of idolatry in particular. So why is Daniel suffering the punishment for sin when Daniel seems to be a very righteous person? Daniel, I, wouldn't, I think if you went and asked him, are you suffering, he would say, no. This is exactly where God put me and why he put me here. I know my purpose. You guys, this is what's amazing. Daniel gets an opportunity to preach to Nebuchadnezzar, right? And in fact, Nebuchadnezzar gets to write a chapter of scripture. It's an amazing thing. Uh, you hear from Nebuchadnezzar his own experience with God, which never would have happened, except that Daniel preached to him. But you guys, it should have happened. 
Nebuchadnezzar should have known about God well before the exile. Why? He's a neighbor of Israel. Israel, acting like a kingdom of priests, should have been telling him the gospel all along, right? All right, I, I told myself I wasn't going to men mention Jonah except for the joke at the beginning of the service today. But you guys, Jonah is the anti-Daniel, isn't he? Right? He is called to go to exactly that same place. And he says, no thanks, I'm not going to go, right? And then God sends him anyway to preach. You guys remember this, right? In chapter 3 then, what happens when Jonah preaches? Just a five-word sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's the only, that's the only recorded sermon from him. It's no you know, five uh, spiritual laws. It's no um, Romans road that he gives. He just says, hey, you guys are toast in 40 days. That's what he says to them, basically. And what happens? They repent. And then he's upset about that. He goes outside and he builds, a, you know, he builds his own little booth out there and he makes some popcorn and he waits for the city to be destroyed, right? So he's the anti-Daniel. He's the anti-Israel. He's the anti-kingdom of priests. He says, whatever I do, I just want to stay home. Like, leave me alone, right? Don't call me to go there. And then, you know, then God does an amazing thing through that. And all of those Ninevites repent from his ministry. Do you see how this works in the Old Testament? Right, this kingdom of priests, the failure of the kingdom of priests. And so Jesus looks back at that and he says, you are no longer good except to be, any, uh, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so we look at that and say, okay, trampled under people's feet, that is punishment. Except that, you guys, that is God's plan too, right? God's plan is, I want those people to hear. You can do it voluntarily, or I can throw you out and trample you under people's feet. But one way or another, Nebuchadnezzar is going to hear about me. Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a chance to repent, right? That's the beautiful thing, you guys. Now, God is going to work his purposes through us, in spite of us. But what's the better way? We learn through, certainly through Jonah, right? That the better way is work with God. Let him work through you. Be actual salt in the world, right? Fulfill your purpose as well. So I, I love that God does that. He allows it to be accomplished in that way. Um, and, and it's an amazing testimony to us that Nebuchadnezzar gets to hear about God because of the exile. It's not a subplot. It's not a plan B. It is God's method of reaching the world. Yes, this is also a New Testament concept for us as well. Throughout the book of Peter, and John talks about this as well, he calls us exiles in this world, right? We are, we are not of this world. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. We're strangers and aliens here, exiles here. You guys, what kind of exile do you want to be? Do you want to be a Jonah exile, or do you want to be a Daniel exile, right? Which of them is living in joy and freedom and, and, and understanding that his circumstances are a means for God to accomplish his purposes, to build his kingdom? And so we get an opportunity to either be a Jonah or a Daniel. I don't know if there are any Jonahs in the room. My, people will always ask me, because I have four boys, and I didn't name any of them Jonah, why I didn't name them Jonah. Well, I don't know that Jonah is exactly a hero in Scripture. Um, God is the hero, obviously, through his story. Um, better to name him Daniel than to name him Jonah at that point. All right, I want to take you to another thing here. Okay? So because of this exile, you have a number of things that happen. First of all, also remember that God had decreed that he wanted his people to come back to the temple three times a year for festivals, right? So there's three festivals where everybody is supposed to gather back at Jerusalem. 
three times a year, and I think this is a wonderful thing too. God knows the value of community for his people. I, I think we've learned a bit in our generation too about the value of community for people, right? There was a major event, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, the pandemic <laughs> that taught us how uncomfortable it is, how unnatural it is for us to be separated from one another, right? For us not to have community together. God recognizes that. And so he calls us together as parts of families uh, like this one, right? As communities that meet together because he knows that we need one another. And I think that's a beautiful thing about that. But those festivals had a purpose, lots of different purposes. But one of them in particular, I think, is made evident in Acts chapter 2. So I want to turn your attention there for a second too. Acts chapter 2. I think we see this exile principle working again. I think we see the aliens and strangers principle working again. Because after that um, exile in 586, a lot of people went to live in Babylon, right? And then they got spread out from there to the four winds of the world. And some of them got very comfortable living lives in Babylon. And so they never even longed to come back to the Holy Land. I always think that's amazing, right? You've been living for 70 years in exile thinking every day about how wonderful life was like before you got sent into exile. And then when you have the opportunity to go back, you say, ah, nah, you know what? I've learned the language here. I'm accustomed to the culture. It's fairly comfortable. You think about somebody like Esther, for instance. I don't want to throw her under the bus too much here. But she barely realizes that she's a Jew until Mordecai comes and tells her, you were called for something like this, right? She has adopted the culture. She is comfortable there. And then finally, somebody wakes her up and says, you know what? You have a different purpose. God has called you to something else. Because I think there are many Christians living lives like Esther. Like, Life is comfortable. I'm used to this. I speak the language. I'm, you know, I'm all into it, except that God has called me to something bigger and better and different. So thank God that he does wake up people like Esther and use them for his purposes. Um, and, and that's what happens, I think, here in, in uh, Acts chapter 2 as well. What you have is the time of Pentecost. And I, I think you guys, as Christians, we think about Pentecost as the day of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it is. But Pentecost was also a festival that had been celebrated for thousands of years before Acts chapter 2. This was a time when, another one of those times when God had decreed that they should come back to the temple together. It falls 50 days after, well, what we would call Easter, which was Passover, Okay. So it's seven sevens plus one. That's how you get to the 50 days. Seven weeks plus one, plus one day. And that's when Pentecost was celebrated. And so what we have at Acts chapter two is a bunch of Jews from all over the world coming to Jerusalem. And they're coming from everywhere uh, that is within the Roman Empire at that time. Now, again, God had decreed that they should come three times a year. But by this time, people were living hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. And so their dream was to come once in a lifetime to Jerusalem for one of these festivals. And so imagine this is your very first time to get to come to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival. What kind of anticipation would be going through you at that time, right? You come from hundreds of miles away. This is your one shot to come into Jerusalem. And I would love to take all of you guys to Jerusalem. You guys want to go sometime? Let's, let's go. It's a wonderful experience. Um, and that's what these people were uh, experiencing too. And one of the things when you get to Jerusalem, you'll find is there are Jews from all over the world who come for a bar mitzvah, so a 13th birthday for their child, right? And so they'll bring their 13-year-old to Jerusalem. And you see tremendous parties uh, happening uh, because of that joyous celebration. 
Well, that's what these people were, were there for in the day of Pentecost, too. So let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, that's the disciples, were all together in one place. Now, this is 50 days after the crucifixion and resurrection as well, okay? So they're all together in one place. I think that one place is the upper room, but that's for another time. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now look at this, verse 5. Now there were, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own, our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So I love this verse here because it gives us a, a tremendous list of people or, or groups of or places, right? Geographical locations. And I want to put up a map of that, the one visual aid that I brought with me today. This map shows you that they are coming from absolutely everywhere within the Roman Empire at that time. And this is what's amazing, you guys. How did they get to all those places? Why are they living in all those places? Because they were spread out by the exile, right? So a couple of hundred years earlier... God had spread them out all over the world here, right? Now they're living comfortable lives back there, still retaining some of their Jewish identity, probably still speaking Hebrew sometimes or reading scripture in Hebrew sometimes, right? But they're living in all of these various different places, okay? And on one particular day, those people all come, or people from all of those places, come to Jerusalem. And what do they see? They see the coming of the Holy Spirit. Imagine this, you guys. What are they going to do when they go back home? Do you think that's going to be a pretty big story that they say? You'll never believe what happened to me. I got my final chance, my first chance to go to Jerusalem. Right? I'm, I'm sitting there, and these guys come out, and they start talking in my own native language. I, I can't understand what happened, but it's obviously the Holy Spirit that came. And now if we read through the rest of um, chapter 2, we'd see that 3,000 of them were baptized that day. Do you think they go back home and share that story with all their friends there? All right, I want you to get this too, and I didn't set it up very well, but track with me here for a second. Jesus, around the Sea of Galilee, was preaching to people who had come from that whole region as well. Okay? He's, they're hearing him preach. He's doing miracles. This is you know, three years earlier or so, two years earlier. Okay? Do you think the people who saw Jesus at the Sea of Galilee went home and said, I got a story to tell, right? There's this guy who's around the Sea of Galilee, and he's doing miracles, healing people, and preaching, and claiming to be the Son of God. Okay? So they go home with that story. The next generation comes back with a story that they were at Pentecost and got to hear Peter preach and see the Holy Spirit come down. Now you get these two people to meet up, right? Let's say they go back to uh, Egypt, for instance, right? And they are in the same synagogue, right? And you hear one of them say, I saw Jesus do miracles. You hear another one say, I saw the Holy Spirit come and verify that Jesus was resurrected, right? And these two people talk together. Now what do they say? We have the whole story, right? We have Jesus, we have the coming of the Holy Spirit, 
God is clearly at work in calling people from all over the world. Now, all of that is set up by the fact that God had spread those people out for you know, 400 years beforehand. He just caused them to be, well, as, it says, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he caused them to be spread out and trampled under people's feet. Not as a punishment, ultimately, but as a fulfillment of his plan for them, right? He put them in the place where they would be available to hear both the gospel from Jesus, but then also the coming of the Holy Spirit and the, the effect that that had as well. You guys following with that? Understand that? So God had put that in place hundreds of years beforehand so that they would be spread out, trampled under people's feet, but then be prepared to hear the gospel. So by the time Paul preaches, uh, less than 40 years after Jesus' um, uh, death, burial, and resurrection, he's able to see, say the entire world has heard this gospel. No internet, right? No high-speed trains, no airplanes. How is it possible that in such a short period of time, the gospel gets to all those places because God has been sowing that seed from the very beginning. You guys, this is also how the gospel came to all of us as well. Uh, you don't quite live at the ends of the earth. We do in Lancaster. Actually, it's not the ends of the earth, but you can see it from there uh, from sh for sure. Um, right? But thousands of years later, gospel has reached all corners of this world because of God's sowing that seed and being faithful to see it through to completion. All right? Um, any questions, thoughts, comments on any of that? You guys are all very quiet. All right. So either I've explained it really well and you don't have any questions left to ask, or I've explained it so poorly that you don't even know where to start to ask your questions. <laughs> and I'll just assume that it was the first of those, but i um, love to hear your thoughts or comments or questions, any interaction. I'm more of a teacher than a preaching pastor, so I, I love to have the interaction. I love to hear what your questions or thoughts are any, on any of that. You guys, I know you're probably not used to doing that in a church service, but I'd love to hear. Nobody has a question. All right. Well, I'll ask you some questions then. How about that? <laughs> so um, what's the implication for us then? What should we do with what God has given to us? Yeah. So are, are you still a kingdom of priests today? Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the other side of that, then a holy nation, right? So a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I, I think this is where we come to a bit of a, a tension within our world too. How do you be both of those things, right? How do you be a kingdom of priests and remain holy, you know, throughout church history, people have asked that question. Um, you had, in the Middle Ages, for instance, you had monks who would go and live in caves, right, so that they would be unstained by the world, and it would just be them and God there in that cave, right? How effective do you think that is? Okay, can you go live in a cave your whole life and be holy? Why not? Because you're there, right? <laughs> Wherever you go, there you are. I mean, it's as simple as that. So you take sin with you. It comes out of your own heart, right? So it doesn't matter what you do to separate yourself from the world. You're still going to be um, tainted by sin. You're still going to be unholy. That doesn't cure your sin problem, does it, to live by yourself someplace, maybe on a pole or in a cave. People tried this uh, for hundreds of years, right? So how do you be both a kingdom of priests and, and be spread out without also being stained by the world around you and remaining holy? That's really the tension that we live with, isn't it? How do you be holy, but also a part of the world? And Jesus was the perfect example of this, which would surprise you, I'm sure. And, and let me take you to a couple of places where Jesus talks about this. Go to John chapter 17.
Jesus spends a good deal of time praying for us. I think that's an amazing thing. Even in scripture, there's a great deal of Jesus praying for us, praying into the future, looking down to our time and praying for us. Isn't that tremendously reassuring? Does Jesus still pray for us, you guys? Yeah. Let's go to John 17, verse 14. Jesus says this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do you guys have the bumper stickers or the symbols that have that not of this world that was pretty popular five, ten years ago? Have you seen this before, the not of this world thing? Uh, well, it is a, a good description of us, right? We are aliens and strangers in this place. And yet God has also left us, even by Jesus' praying, that we would be in this world, um, but not of the world. Think about how Jesus did this. He did it perfectly, of course. But I think he felt the tension that comes from being in the world and not of the world. Matthew chapter 11. Let's turn there for a second. Matthew 11, verses 18 to 19. <laughs> the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they're accusing him of all kinds of things. In Matthew chapter 11, again, verses 18 to 19. And so he starts to bring up John the Baptist as an example. And he tells them, you know, John was one kind of prophet. I'm another kind of prophet. But it doesn't really matter what kind of prophet God sends to you. You're not going to listen to them. And so they accuse him of this. They say in, in Matthew 11:18, Jesus says this about them. He says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by his deeds. So what did Jesus do? He came and was in the world, right? He knew what it meant to be around people who were sinful because all of us are, right? And he spent his time with us. He, he came and condescended to live with people like us. And that just leads to the world, of course, rejecting him. But they also rejected John, who had come not doing any of those things and still giving the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and still rejected by them. So no matter what, um, revelation the, the world gets, it is going to reject the Lord unless he opens their eyes to see him and hear him through his word, right? So we should be, I think, courageous in that. Don't, don't worry if you're misunderstood, either as a John or as a Jesus. Jesus was misunderstood as well. It's not the understanding of your words or even your actions that will lead to people's uh, repentance and faith. It is God's working in their heart that will accomplish that for them. And so Jesus, again, perfect example of being salt and light in this world, living courageously, living uh, transparently, uh, and living so that people could see what it meant to walk with God in this world. So Jesus, again, a perfect example for us of how to be salt and light in this world, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what Jesus came to do and be for you and for me. Let's pray. Dearest Lord, I do thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, and for the fact that you would live your word out for us in this world, that you would become flesh and dwell with us. Lord, we know that we can live this life courageously because you lived a perfect life here on earth. Lord, I thank you that you've given us our identity, that you tell us who we are, that we get to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation because you made us that way. And Lord, that we also get the privilege of um, calling people out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, I thank you for our own personal redemption that you have called us to yourself because of your love for us. And I thank you that you let us play a role in redemption as well. That people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation will come to you, in part because we give them that invitation. 
So Lord, I pray that you would help us to live courageous lives in this world. Lord, that we wouldn't get stuck in a salt shaker. Lord, that, but that we would be willing to be spread out and uh, used for your glory in all parts of the world. Lord, I pray that you would give us a vision for our neighbors. Lord, that we would do a better job of being a kingdom of priests uh, than uh, the people of the Old Testament did. Lord, that we would be courageous in doing that. That you would teach us to do that. Uh, Lord, we, want, we hunger and thirst for your kingdom to come. And I pray, Lord, that you'll be glorified in the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.